Hello, and welcome to the Understanding Autism podcast, where we talk about issues related to those in the autism and greater neurodiverse community. I'm your co-host, Brett Thayer. And I am Nicole Kabilis. Today's episode is about autistic meltdowns, shutdowns, and self-injurious behavior. The topics that we're going to cover are what autistic self-injurious behavior looks like, the similarities and differences between autistic meltdowns and shutdowns, how shame plays a role in self-harm, meltdowns, and shutdowns, and how these three behaviors could be handled. All right. And so that goes into what is really autistic self-injurious behavior. And so, you know, the obvious definition is when somebody's intentionally damaging themselves or their body, right? And so there's many different examples of this. So sometimes we see slapping or scratching or headbanging, biting, pinching, hair pulling. Um, other types of self-harm could be cutting, burning, piercing the skin with sharp objects. Uh, some people do this um, self-type of harm because it doesn't come off as classically autistic. In other words, there's other students who do this who are not in the um, autistic spectrum, and it doesn't trigger that shame of being autistic. Um, it can redirect from having a meltdown, which we're going to talk about, since many of the self-injurious behaviors lead up to a meltdown and can occur during a meltdown as well. So one interesting um, article that we came across was that from the National Autistic Society is that 50% of autistic adults have experienced self-harm sometime in their lifetimes, even if it was only once. So reasons for self-harm can be, then there's a, there's a lot of different reasons. Again, um, autism is a spectrum, and so not all of these reasons are relative to, relevant to every person on the spectrum, but... Um, many of them experience some of these. So it could be a form of communication. So for if you, if you think about um, autistic children who are having trouble communicating um, themselves, self-harm might be a way to, like, like a cry for help, right? To get their needs met um, because they just don't have the, the vocalization skills. Um, other possibilities are sens sensory stimulation to increase or decrease arousal of something or a sense of gaining back control in a situation that they feel that they don't have a lot of control in, right? For example, about to experience a meltdown, um, struggling with stress, worries, overwhelm, or overstimulation, um, trauma, or difficult experiences, such as breakup or job loss, um, being around others who also self-harm, which is a form of normalization, um, regulating depression or and numbness, wanting to feel something um, punishing themselves, especially relevant with um, this idea of perfectionism that some on the spectrum experience. Relieving un unbearable tension or pain, it could be as a cry for help, or um, as a distraction from intrusive thoughts. And another interesting kind of statistic is that autistic women are more likely to engage in self-harm behaviors than autistic men are. Again, and that's from the National Autism Society. Mm -hmm. I think what you had mentioned earlier about how self-harming relieves unbearable tension and pain. There might be a confusing dichotomy of why would you cause pain to yourself mm -hmm. as a exactly. way to relieve pain? And pain can be feel, felt in a lot of different ways. There's emotional pain, there's chronic physical pain, and sometimes the sharpness of self-injurious behavior is a way to redirect chronic pain or emotional pain to another part of the body. So that's kind of 
a maybe a more concrete explanation of mm-hmm. why you can relieve unbearable tension or pain. And, you know, I mean, I think about even just muscle aches, like sometimes you you just harm yourself because it is an expression of that pain. And mm. the the injuring is the release of just that buildup of like constantly being in a state of physical tension. Yeah, good point. Yeah. So I've had past experiences with self-harm. Most of the time they happen during a meltdown. And my self-harming behavior is pretty classically, stereotypically autistic. It usually involves slapping my hands on my forehead and screaming. In the past, I've banged my head on my on the walls. I guess I don't know if I have memory of other autistic self-injurious behavior. I'm sure when I was younger, I bit myself. Um, But as an adult, really the only type of self-injurious behavior that I commonly do is slapping my hands on my forehead. And Mm. again, that only really happens if I'm in a meltdown. Okay. I've only had one experience of cutting my wrist as a form of self-harm. And again, when I say one experience, I mean one time. Mm-hmm. And that was to prevent a meltdown from happening. My thinking was that, that the pain from a cut would snap me out of being stuck in a meltdown that could last for hours. And I think at the time of doing it, I was kind of losing healthier coping skills. So I have a list of coping skills that I normally default to when I'm distressed. And if I try all those resources and they don't work, then there is more of a tendency to want to self-harm. And at the time that I was in that point of distress, which was during my first year of teaching, it was at home, it wasn't on the job. I guess I got to a point where I was like, I'm gonna try this. And I guess it's weird to self-harm when as a teacher, you're looking for students who self-harm and being proactive about that. So I think on the one hand, there was this part of me that was like, I really don't want to do this because I know it's bad. But I think there was another part of me that was in so much pain and distress that I was like, I'm willing to do anything to get me out of this meltdown. Mm -hmm. So I took a serrated knife and I had cut my wrist, barely like broke the skin. Like there was Mm -hmm. no blood. I I would call it maybe to the level of depth of like a paper cut. Okay. And I think that there was enough uh, sharpness of pain that it did temporarily take me out of the meltdown. But at the same time, the pain from cutting myself was so unpleasant that I was like, well, that's not going to work. So right, after right. that, I, I never cut myself again. Um, I will say when I do have those self-injurious feelings coming up, um, sometimes my default is I'll want to take my keys and rub them Mm. against my wrist. So it's like, Mm. I feel like that tendency is there, but actually puncturing in skin and, Mm. and drawing blood doesn't personally appeal to me. And I think it was because of that one instance. And then the ironic thing was, you know, I cut myself as a way to prevent the meltdown And I don't want to say the meltdown still happened, but I was still in distress. And so Mm -hmm. I think 
what that taught me in the moment is you're going to have to find another way to deal with it. And I ended up going back to being in a more proactive state of, okay, what are some healthier choices I can do to address my feelings? So it was kind of this weird flip-flop of like, in my mind, like, oh, maybe the cutting would help. It helped for a little bit. And then I realized it didn't help. And so then I kind of snapped back to, okay, let's make some healthier choices. And again, like, I think my self-injurious behavior only really comes from being in distress. It's not like, it's not like I'm doing it regularly. Like I rarely self-harm. It only happens when I'm like really on, on the edge of a meltdown. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, it, it kind of, it's a, it can be a contributing factor, right? You're, you're doing this to avoid a meltdown and yet it can still lead to a meltdown, right? Because, you know, this kind of adding on to everything that you're experiencing that's causing the, the meltdown in the first place. Yeah, definitely. Okay. So, you know, a lot of times when I, when we talk about um, experiences on this podcast, my experiences with my son, who's autistic, um, with self-harm was not as um, overt as, you know, running into walls, you know, the horror stories some that some parents have experience with, you know, their kids punching holes through drywall and things like that. For Joshua, you know, when he's stressed or, you know, he's in trouble, he would tense up, his whole body would tense up, and then he would start pinching himself hard, right? And this would be like, you know, this this behavior that we didn't understand at the time and try to, you know, get him to stop doing this, obviously, as a concerned parent. Um, but that was that was basically the cons- the extent of his self-harming experiences. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's, I don't want to say that it's rare that a person with autism self-harms outside of a meltdown. I think it does happen. Um, but a lot of self-harming behavior occurs as a buildup right. to a meltdown or or a shutdown. Right. So, yeah, I guess it's kind of. But I but at the same time, I think that's that's how most people self-harm anyway. They do mm-hmm. it because it's a buildup to a distressing thing. And then the self-harm oh, sure. is an expression of that distress or it's a way to avoid dealing with that distress. Right. Yeah. So yeah, I, you know, I can see my son going back now, you know, um, he's in trouble and I'm, you know, yelling at him for doing something and, you know, he tenses up, you know, cleanses his, his teeth and then he's pinching himself. Right. Which is not what I wanted him to do, you know, to, to experience this, this kind of thing that he's doing, but that was definitely a common occurrence for sure. Yeah. So did you have neurodiverse students self-harm in your classroom? And if so, what did you do about it? Okay, so in my in my regular classroom in high school, I didn't have student self-harm in my classroom. Um, but I do have to say, though, since we're on this topic of self-harm, is that um, as a teacher, I've seen a lot of evidence of students harming themselves. And usually it's in the form of cutting, right? And as as teachers, we're kind of hyper aware of these kinds of things, and we it's something we have to report. Um, so this is something that, you know, I saw more than once, but I did not see anybody who was uh, neurodiverse self-harming, although I do have a story from another teacher in our building who did. And so this child was on the spectrum and then um, uh, things were building up throughout the week, not going well. 
whatever. I don't think the uh, the teacher themselves knew all the other things that were building up to this moment. But during class, the child hit his head hard on the desk. And it was, you know, panic, freak out. Okay, what do we do? Clear the room, you know, which, and we're going to talk about that later, some appropriate responses and things and what we could do as teachers or um, employers in the workplace. But it was, you know, a crisis moment. And so, you know, he had to find a, you know, get, get support and pull him out of the classroom to try to figure out what led up to this. Uh, but he, he gave himself a concussion. Hmm. So, by the way, okay, what grade yeah. level was this? This was, um, he was, I'm thinking freshman. I'm thinking freshman. Okay, so yeah. it was high school. Yeah, high school. How about you, Nicole? Um, Have you experienced any of this? Well, I guess I, I guess what I wanted to ask in clarification is like, so let's say that you are talking to a neurodiverse student outside of your classroom, kind of like what mm -hmm. was going on with Josh. Mm -hmm. And the student is in trouble and you see them starting to self-harm in front of you and there's no para. What mm -hmm. do you do? Well, oh, and we're, we're going to talk about this um, in, in the podcast as well. But one thing that I would do is um, pull, the, pull the kid aside and say, all right, um, clearly you're stressed about something. Um, if I'm if I'm engaging in the classroom and I'm delivering instruction, that's not the time to have a conversation. But I might say to the the child, "Why don't you go take a walk, go get a drink, come back outside, wait for me right here outside the classroom, and then after I give instruction, I'll come back and we'll talk about what's going on." Yeah, I think the only conflict that I have with that is if you tell a student go take a walk and they're in that sort of Mm -hmm. meltdown, self-injurious mindset, you know, two things can happen. One is right, for sure. maybe they, they do need a healthy coping, coping mechanism, like going for a walk, go mm -hmm. sit in the dark in a different classroom, you know, go mm -hmm. to counseling and they'll do it. The, the problem is that when we send kids into the hallway, we have no idea what's going to happen. Right, and, that's true. and it makes me think about like, if a kid is nauseous, or has a fever, or has a concussion, or, um, I mean, to go to an extreme, if they're, if they have suicidal thoughts, like you don't want to leave them alone. Right. For sure. It depends you know, on the, the severity of what they're doing. Yeah, I mean, if totally. they're pinching and, so, and, and it also depends on how well I know the student, right? If he's brand new or she's brand new, um, and I don't know the extent of what's going on, then I'm going to act differently. But if I have a relationship with the, with the student and it's a pinching behavior or something like that, I mean, if, obviously, if the kid's cutting themselves, you know, I'm not going to say take a walk, right? Um, but if it's a pinching behavior, flexing, or just I just see this tensing, yeah. right? You know, yeah. it all depends on degrees. And so we, you know, as teachers, we have to be hyper aware. So if it's an emergency kind of situation where they have, you know, they're piercing themselves with something, you know, then it's like, okay, get somebody to cover your room, you know, and call a counselor or somebody who mm -hmm. can come to your room right away. Yeah. Well, and what I, what I would do like with students who, you know, maybe were going through some significant emotional distress, I, I, uh, DM the counselors and I say, Hey, uh, the student is heading to your office, make sure that they're there. Um, mm -hmm. because it's like students will make all sorts of decisions mm -hmm. to cope with their distress and you know as adults like we're in charge of their safety but when they're in the hallway and no eyes are on them we have no mm -hmm. idea what they're doing right um you know i remember i had a neurotypical student who 
you know, was, was going through some pretty significant emotional distress and she was crying. And I said, I'm going to send you to counseling. She didn't want to go to counseling, but she was in a state where I was like, you can't be here. It's going to be better for you to go be, you know, go to the counseling office, had sent an email. They wrote back and they were like, the student never came to the counseling office. And I'm like, oh God, where did this student go? Well, what she ended up doing was she just sat in the hallway and cried, Mm -hmm. which, you know, I'm not, from the student's perspective, it's like, that's not a bad decision. Like if no, you yeah, a good need one, to actually. process it on your own, that's mm-hmm. fine. But from the teacher's perspective, like, I don't know what's going to happen to you. Like, I don't know if you're going to run off campus. Like, right, and then, right. you know, if, if, if they're distressed and there's no supervision, like you just have no idea what they're going to do. Right. And so, um, yeah, so I, I think it's important that, you know, if a teacher sends a student into the hallway that there's some adult that's made aware, like, okay, mm-hmm. the student's under distress, like, right. you know, and, and, and I, if I think about it, if I were a student in that place of distress, I would probably want an adult to come up to me and say, Hey, I see that you're struggling. Let me mm-hmm. take you to counseling, mm-hmm. you know? So even if Absolutely. I'm like, I, I I guess I feel like even if I'm in a state of mind like, oh yeah, I can handle it, that could change on a dime. For sure. Um, yeah, I'll also add to not that this is totally related to um self-harming, but I did have a student with autism who like asked to go to the bathroom. And I said, Yeah, the student didn't come back for like 40 minutes and mm. it it the student ended up sending me an email like after school and was like, Hey, I had a panic attack, uh, had no idea why right. and had no way of communicating with me. But like on my end, I'm like, where is this student? You know, you're going through all these thoughts in your mind of like, are they ditching? Right. Are mm-hmm. they safe? You know? And I, and I, the administrators told me that I had to write a, an incident report on it, which was hard to do because, you know, I can understand why the student made the choice that they did. Right, right. Um, And that led to a conversation between the two of us, which again, like the student knew I was on the autism spectrum. And I said, Mm. if that happens again, email me immediately, like communicate Mm -hmm. with me somehow. Right. Or if you have to go see an adult, tell that adult to contact me. So then I don't, have to take disciplinary action that's going to mm-hmm. make the whole situation worse because we have no idea where you are. Right. Um, and that, anyway. and that, goes to, that, that goes to really um, self-advocacy, right? So as kids on the spectrum learn about um, their triggers and they learn about what's going to um, set them off or, or give them anxiety, right? Learning how to communicate with a trusted adult um, having a plan, you know, these things become important. Mm-hmm. I'll, I was going to add something else about the topic. Oh yeah. So one thing I will definitely say as a don't do, you know how, um, like if you have a student with severe special needs and you see the para kind of like pulling their hands away, if you see that they're going to like bite themselves or hit mm-hmm. themselves, mm-hmm. I don't think general educators should ever put their hands on a neurodiverse student if you see them starting to pinch like don't touch them okay um i think that 
it's a good idea to, like you said before, communicate like, how are you feeling? Or I can see you're in distress, like kind of do mm -hmm. some verbal coaching and say, what do you need? You know, cause I, cause I think that, that, you know, even if it is harmful, it's a coping mechanism. Mm -hmm. And, and if a teacher reaches over, grabs that kid, which again, that creates all sorts of sensory right. triggers, but mm -hmm. then there's also the emotional violation of I'm doing something shameful and mm -hmm. uh, I have a lost sense of control of I'm doing right. this behavior to cope and right. you're taking that away from me. So I would definitely, well, and I think teachers know, like you don't put your hands on any kid regardless, right. but, but I think I get concerned that if a teacher sees a para doing that, then they might think, oh, that's what I should do. Right. So that yeah, that's the only reason I bring it up. I, and I think it's the, you know, obvious response of teachers to be supportive and try to prevent, you know, a student from harming themselves. Right. So yeah. that's probably where that comes from. Yeah. So I think in relation to my classroom, the only students that self-harmed were students with special needs. And it it's kind of like what I talked about earlier. Mm -hmm. that the para will usually intervene. Yeah, if you I, have a para. Yeah, well, I, I've always had a para when it when it came to like students with severe needs. Mm -hmm. um, at, at my previous school, we had a, an adaptive needs program. So mm -hmm. it was sort of like in between the, the SSN program right. and like the mild moderate caseworkers. And, you know, they would also have paras, but... Really, it was only the students with severe special needs that would self-harm. Yeah, that makes um, sense. And, and in those cases, some other adult would do something to intervene and, and remove right. the students. So I never had to intervene with a student that self-harmed. And, and chances are, like, most teenage students, like, they're not going to harm themselves in front of you. Not or in front yeah. of other peers. And I, and I even think like, even as an adult, when I've had those self-injurious thoughts, like I have enough self-awareness to go, I'm going to remove myself and go somewhere private to do mm -hmm. that. Right. I mean, you got to be in a lot of distress or fairly young to self-harm in front of everybody. Yeah, and I think that, you know, where Joshua was doing that was more elementary school than not high school, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, he just didn't know how to cope with his stress. And so, yeah. you know, pinching himself um, or biting himself or something like that was kind of a natural response to mm -hmm. um, what he was feeling at the moment. Yeah, definitely. Okay, so let's transition a little bit to uh, meltdowns and shutdowns. And so what do these two behaviors have in common? Really a lot. Um, hitting a limit of overwhelm, overstimulation, or stress anxiety, for example. Um, and it's an expression of, of the stress. And a meltdown or a shutdown is an attempt to get rid of that stress and calm oneself down. Typically, if you have a meltdown or a shutdown, um, there's a long recovery time. And usually it's caused by autistic burnout. So it's it, autistic burnout, and we should probably have a whole thing just on this, is <laughs> yeah. the, um, is the, idea that the autistic per person, the neurodiverse person is living in a neurotypical world and it's 
stressful, it's exhausting, and there's a lot of reasons that um, there's a lot of pushback, right? There's a lot of things aren't working well. So you might have too many demands placed on that person or unexpected changes of routines, which was something that uh, my son experienced a lot. Sensory overload, social overload from friends or expectations, right? And sensitivity to rejection. Usually it's caused by multiple factors of these, right? Um, compiling on top of each other and rather than one isolated incident. And it also, you know, throw in hormonal changes, right? Menstruation, hormone replacement therapy, puberty in middle school, all of these factors can um, assist or contribute to meltdowns and shutdowns. So then we go to what is, um, what is a meltdown? Let's talk one at a time. Let's Let's do meltdowns. And what does a meltdown look like? So meltdown is like a fight response, right? We talk about, you know, fight or flight. This is a fight response when you can't escape an action or a situation or that feeling that you can't escape. So it might, some manifestations might be irritability, like shouting and physical aggression in a meltdown, um, increased amount of fidgeting or stimming more than normal, right? Um, getting frustrated over small things. It could be, it could manifest in crying, sobbing, and wailing, which is what I experienced with Joshua. Screaming, running away, self-harming that we've talked about, kicking, screaming, could be biting, pinching um, at themselves or other people. Um, and it serves a purpose of releasing stress rather than serving as a motive um, to get something like a tantrum, which as a parent, I did not know. So I assume that the meltdowns were a t the same thing as a tantrum, and that was a mistake on my part as a parent. Um, usually these are on involuntary. No autistic child wants to ha experience um, a meltdown, for example. And um, autistic adults advocate uh, that meltdowns are a natural part of being human and are nothing to be ashamed over. In other words, these things can and will happen in the workplace, and it should, shouldn't be stigmatized. Mm -hmm. To kind of add to that point as well, so Nick Dubin wrote a book called Asperger's Syndrome and Anxiety. Nick Dubin is a uh, PhD psychotherapist, mm -hmm. and he's on the autism spectrum. And I guess I want to use my words carefully in describing this because we, we don't want to normalize that meltdowns are part of a mental health coping tool because they, they suck. They suck to go through. <laughs> uh, I have never felt happy to have a meltdown, right. um, but it is a very important part of our biological process. And so Nick mm -hmm. Dubin has a, a, a part of his book that talks about how, um, while it's important to have coping, uh, what do you call it, a better, healthier coping mechanisms for distress, mm -hmm. if you do go into a meltdown state, it's okay. And mm -hmm. there's so much stigma around meltdowns because it's basically one of the the core identifying behaviors of being mm -hmm. autistic. And so mm -hmm. uh, it's also like it it real it takes a toll on the person who has the meltdown. It takes a toll on the caregivers. And the general public looks at it as like you're immature, you're emotionally mm -hmm. unstable. Mm -hmm. So I think what Nick Dubin is is trying to say is that, if you do end up being a meltdown state and you're alone and you're in your private space, surrender to that process, knowing that that's what your body needs mm -hmm. to purge stress. Um, obviously, you don't want to do it in a way where 
you know, you're doing collateral damage or right. you're seriously injuring yourself. But if it happens, it happens. Right. So, you know, and then once it happens, then there's a restoration process mm -hmm. that comes with, okay, what does my body need after this transition? Mm -hmm. So again, like I'm not sharing this to normalize it. I'm just right, saying right. that um, I think it's just reinforcing the point that for us autistics, having a meltdown is part of our stress response. And uh, there's a lot of neurotypical stigma around having meltdowns when, again, you know, it's kind of like if you have anxiety and you have a panic attack, like that's part of your biological process. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Okay, All right, so, so what is what is a shutdown? Yeah, so a lot of this information comes with the blog or comes from the blog My Soul Bomb. The author's name is Maria. I do not know Maria's last name, uh, but we wanted to give credit because it's an awesome article. So a shutdown is a freeze response when escape isn't an option. During a, a shutdown, you're completely silent. You're not able to communicate. You withdraw to a quiet, dark inner space. You're not able to move. You have little to no energy. There is a disassociation from thoughts and feelings. There's an intense need to be alone. A lot of autistics have compared uh, a shutdown to sleep mode on a computer. Mm. There, it's often caused from sensory overwhelm, emotional overwhelm, um, not having enough time to process difficult topics, being rushed to make a decision, stress, pain, or illness. Shutdowns are an escape from overthinking. Even though we are <laughs> overthinkers and we mm. love to overthink things, it's exhausting to mm. overthink things. So a shutdown allows a deep rest and reset for the autistic brain. And it it's a way for us to preserve our mental health and oftentimes prevent a meltdown. So what what I've learned and read about is that if a person in a shutdown is kind of tried to get riled out, out of it um, by a well-intentioned neurotypical person, it will actually cause a meltdown. If you think about it, it's really similar to like, if somebody's kind of like waking up from a nap or they're mm. in the middle of a nap and all of a sudden you're jostled awake and you're really irritable, mm -hmm. like it's, it's a really similar experience. The brain can perceive any request, big or small, as an overwhelming threat. The autistic brain really functions on overdrive. This kind of relates back to that overthinking. We, we have a really strong attention to detail. We're pattern thinkers. We rehearse a lot of social scripts. There's masking. Uh, we do a, you know, we're trying to do a bunch of adult independence tasks. Then there's stress related to work and school. When all of that compounds, like, there's a point where our brain just short circuits and that leads to a meltdown or a shutdown. And the goal of the shutdown is to keep the autistic person safe and sane. This is not the same as stonewalling, which creates the stigmatizing stereotype that people with autism are abusive, uncaring, and manipulative. So say for an example, if you're in a romantic relationship with somebody on the autism spectrum and you're in conflict 
and the partner is, you know, yelling at him and using a lot of you statements and or maybe it's even a little more tame. There's I statements, um, but something triggers that person to go into the shutdown to that romantic partner. It might look like that person doesn't care that they're not listening, that, um, you know, going into a shutdown is a manipulative tactic um, to to avoid concerns that are in the relationship. That's not what it is. Um, and the other thing is that a shutdown may be misperceived as escape or devo- uh, avoidance, deliberately avoiding doing a task to get out of a responsibility. And that's not what it is either. You really have to think about a shutdown being similar to a meltdown in the sense that that person is not able to control their physiology to get out of that state of mind. So whatever you're asking that person to do, it's just not going to happen. Right. That makes sense. Yeah. All and right. I'll I'll also add really quick too. So if you guys don't already know, I write poems um, about each podcast episode and I did write poems about meltdowns and shutdowns. I think the best metaphor to really think about each one, I compare a meltdown to a wildfire and I compare a shutdown to ice. So mm. a meltdown is very hot. It's very mm-hmm. uh, uncontrollable. It's it's ravaging. And a shutdown, I kind of compare it to being frozen in ice or being mm-hmm. buried in snow. There's this uh there's this sort of suppression or or uh restriction in sort of a right. cold icy environment and there's a disconnect from people who are kind of out in the outside mm-hmm. world. So, so I think that's just a good wanting way everything to, to stop. It. Just wanting oh, everything yeah. to stop. Yeah. Okay. Basically. Yeah, if the world doesn't <laughs> stop for right. you then you stop yourself. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Okay, so this kind of goes into um, my son's experiences with meltdowns, and I have my own metaphor. So my metaphor, I didn't experience, or we haven't experienced um, shutdowns with Josh, but meltdowns for sure, right? And so my metaphor for understanding to to how I understood what Joshua was going through was the um, plot storyline diagram. So in your mind, if you can think of, right, this um, line where it's horizontal and that's kind of the introduction, right? Um, and everything's fine. And then the the line inclines, it goes up and that's the conflict building tension, right? For Joshua and, and other people on the spectrum, perhaps it's not like a straight line, it's a spiral. So it's spiraling up and there might be um, tensions or triggers or th- one thing's building on something else and it's spiraling up and spiraling up and spiraling up until it hits a climax and that's the explosion part. That's the the screaming, the outburst, the yelling, you know, all of those things. And then after that comes the falling action, right? And the falling action is like tears and, you know, those kinds of things. Um, but it also really, as I thought about it, you know, it's all the um, emotional responses that go with after having this, this uh, meltdown, right? Which is... The feeling of ashamed or regret or embarrassment. Um, it's an emotionally draining experience. And so all that occurs on the falling action part. And then 
it just, it bottoms out. Right. And then there's resolution and recovery and right. And recovery might take a while, might take a while. Um, and so that's, that's kind of my metaphor of understanding, uh, meltdowns. Did you ever notice what triggered the meltdowns? That was the thing. So as a parent learning how to help Josh on the spectrum, it was to identify what those triggers were. And so it could be a number of, a number of things, right? And so one example would be in his middle school classroom, there was just this girl that he did not like to work with and he, she would push his buttons all the time. And the teacher didn't necessarily know about this um, or it was subtle. Right. And, you know, coupled with everything else he had to deal with that day or during the week, it just kind of manifested itself into this spiraling thing. And, you know, it just kind of triggered during that class and it just blew up. Mm -hmm. Another example would be classic overwhelm. So when I took um, Joshua and his older brother to Disney World, right, and it was just me as one parent, um, in hindsight, and have two adults. Anyway, um, think of Disney World for a little kid. It's amazing. It's great. It's awesome. Costumes and flashing lights and all these kinds of things. Guess what? After a while, it becomes overwhelming. And again, he's he's in crisis. It's a you know screaming, yelling, and it's like, why are why are you doing this? We should be having fun. And I didn't understand that he was experiencing overwhelm. And the solution would have been to take him off into some quiet space, maybe get some lunch, um, get some water. Um, have him put his head down and relax, you know, try to try to reduce the, the sensory stimulation and just let him recover. And then maybe we can go back to that um, activity or maybe we call it a day. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I. Uh, I hate it when I. Start talking and then I lose my train of thought. Well, you're going to talk about um, your own. I know. Well, no, I, I, I had some reactions based on your story. I, I think one of the reasons that a kid will also have a meltdown is one, they don't have the self-advocacy skills to say like, I'm not feeling well. Like if you think right. about like a kid who throws up, like mm. most older kids or preteens will like know what nausea feels like and they'll come up to the parent and say, oh, I don't feel good. And then mm -hmm. they throw up. Whereas like toddlers will just do it. And then right. all of a sudden the parents caught off guard because they're like, oh, I didn't know you were sick. I think mm -hmm. meltdowns are really similar. And mm -hmm. I think that like sometimes meltdowns happen because the parent isn't catching on that the kid is hitting that limit or mm -hmm. maybe the kid's giving a cue. And, and like you said, the parent might have a bias. that's like, oh, you're fine. Like, right. just give it some time. You'll adjust. And right. And the meltdown is really like the sign that says, get me out of here nope. now. We're done. Check, oh please. god. I mean, I'm trying to think about like like other examples like you know, it's like if you have a migraine and you're being forced to say go to Disney World, like you're going to start crying mm -hmm. because you're in pain or I think about like I have horrible menstrual cramps. If I had to I mean, I've had <laughs> not like autistic meltdowns, but like I've I've had pretty serious sobbing fits because I was just like miserable. Mm. And just trying, like, I, I remember one time I had cramps so bad that I was like in the fetal position in the, in the footwell of the car 
And wow. my parents, you know, we it was a rent-a-car. We were driving to our hotel. And I'm just like, get me out of here. Like, I need to go take a bath or I need a heating mm -hmm. pad. Like, right. and, uh, and, you know, my parents are like, well, there's nothing we can do about it. Like, we're going home. Like, we hear you. But, like, it's going to take mm -hmm. some time. There's going to be traffic. Mm -hmm. And the pain was just so excruciating that I just, like, I couldn't melt down in a mature way. And by the way, that this particular incident I'm talking about happened in my early 20s. Mm. Like, okay. it, it, it's just like, if you're that miserable, like, you're going to cry. You're going to mm. get irritable. Like, right. that. It, it, again, just to kind of talk about, like, normalizing, like, our body has certain responses when we somatically, physiologically get to a point where we're like, I'm done. Right. <laughs> you know? So um, I guess related mm -hmm. to my experience, uh, I've never had an autistic shutdown. I have actually, I have heard from like other caseworkers and paras about students having an autistic shutdown. I've never mm -hmm. personally experienced it. Um, but I've I've actually never really heard about what an autistic shutdown was until I started doing research for this podcast. Mm -hmm. My mm -hmm. default stress response is meltdowns. Okay. Um, when I was a kid, I used to call my meltdowns blind fury. And that's because my rational consciousness went offline. My mm -hmm. actions felt very primal and out of my control. When my meltdown was over, I had no idea what happened. Mm, interesting. Um, I, well, often, like, I have memories as a kid where I would sort of sober up out of the meltdown and I would look around and I would see pillows everywhere. Uh, uh -huh. So usually when I, if I would do damage to objects, I had enough awareness to pick objects that had low stakes. Like, I would go to town on a tissue box, but I would never okay. touch a, my computer. Interesting. So, but, you know, you see the carnage and you're like, what happened? Wow. Like, what? why did I do this? Mm -hmm. So that's why I call it blind fury, because you, you, you don't have you don't have any idea what you're doing when you're doing it. And mm -hmm. and I will tell you, no matter how old you are, you don't want to do it. Right. But right. you're doing it. And after the meltdown, I would often feel drained and ashamed of my actions. And mm -hmm. I will also add this too. I think when I was younger, I had a lot of object empathy. So it's kind of that idea of like when you're a kid and you have a stuffed animal and you think that the stuffed animal has like a living, breathing presence. And when you destroy that object or you lose it, you feel this sense of guilt like you hurt the animal. Mm -hmm. So when I, so my mom told me, when I was a toddler, she was like, you had meltdowns 24 times a day. Like I was in meltdown mode all day, every day. She had no idea why I had a meltdown, how to get me out of it. And there was this one memory that we had talked about where even to this day, like I'm 31, my mom still doesn't understand why I had this particular meltdown. So basically she said that I... I had a Mickey Mouse and a Minnie Mouse plastic figurines in my hands, one in each hand. And I walked up to her and just 
dropped the figurines. It wasn't like I tripped. It wasn't like they accidentally fell out. She said, I deliberately let go and they dropped and I had a meltdown. And she was like, why? You right. did this. Why right. did you have a meltdown? And I said, well, I think that in my mind, I hurt the characters. Mm. And I felt that incident, there was a part of me that was able to kind of rationally deduce like, that might be why it happened. And mm. now that I'm an adult and I'm able to verbalize it, she's like, oh, that makes sense. And also, where were you to tell me this when I was dealing with it in the moment? <laughs> yeah. So, um, yeah, so there are, are a lot of different reasons. I do think one of the biggest struggles I had with my parents was they thought meltdowns were something that I would grow out of as an adult. I have meltdowns as an adult. It caught me off guard, to be honest, because I also thought that I had outgrew them. I thought that I had really good coping skills, like doing yoga and meditation as a way to circumvent having meltdowns. But I have them as adults. And, uh, and I think my parents were confused because they bought into this rhetoric that I was falsely cured of autism and that I had moved past it. So I do want to address that and say that when you're autistic, you will always have that propensity for having meltdowns no matter how old you are. Mm. And at, like I said before, it's just part of our biological process. It's We certainly develop better coping skills, but the reasons that we have meltdowns is because life doesn't stay the same. We might get familiar with, say, an elementary school environment, but then when we transition to middle right. school, it, it triggers a whole new set of stressors yeah. and we have no coping skills. So I think that's that's what parents lose the disconnect with. Mm -hmm. um, and if you think about it with life in general, you know, I would imagine when you were a parent, like you didn't know how to be a parent when you were, I don't know, a teenager, like we right, go right. into so many skills in the, okay, I'm like stumbling my words. Uh, no, you're good. We as humans go through so many d different things in life that we've never gone through before that incur a lot of stress. And when we don't have those coping skills or when a coping skill that we used to have all of a sudden doesn't work, then we tend to have stress. We have frustration. We have breakdowns. Autistic people are no different. The triggers might look different, but the process is just as human as it would be for neurotypical people. All right, here we come to the end of part one of this episode. Yes, apparently we had a lot to say. Yes. So we decided to split episode five into two parts. Part two will begin as we dive deeper into our own experiences with meltdowns, including my seven day meltdown experience. <laughs> that was quite quite the story. I know. I was well. I don't know. It's yeah. it's a ironically enthusiastic tone <laughs> for describing meltdowns. I know. Exactly. That's that's. <laughs> I'm uh, just hindsight. so excited to have people listen to part two. <laughs> that's exactly all right. So part two will also include our tips and advice for handling meltdowns, shutdowns, and self harming behavior, as well as advice for teachers and autistic people in the workplace. All right, you can find all the topics and resources for these episodes on our show notes on our website at understandingautism.info. And at the end of uh, part two, we're gonna talk about all the ways that you can connect with us on social media. And 
how you can give feedback. Absolutely. Until then, I'm Brett Thayer. And I'm Nicole Cabellas. 